Motivating Metalheads. It's me, Kenneth Dean, along with my co-host, Chris Kay. We're back again for another exciting episode of Debating Metal, and we've got another head-to-head for you with 80s metal veterans Whitesnake with Slide It In versus Whitesnake, or 1987, depending on what part of the world you're in. It's arguably Whitesnake's two best albums, and tonight we'll decide which one we think is better. We're going to review all the tracks from both albums, offer our opinions on each, and then at the end, we'll determine which album we think is better. We're also going to have some more rusty metal for you and a new online pick of the week. And make sure to listen to the end when we'll give you our big four white stake songs. By now, the regulars know the routine, but for the newbies, Rusty Metal is my pick of a classic metal album I think you should give another listen to, and Chris offers an online pick of the week that he thinks you should check out. So if you like what you hear or want to check out our previous episodes, click subscribe and you'll get our newest episode every week. We also want to interact with you guys and read your opinions. So if you like what we had to say or just want to rip us a new one, send us an email to debatingmetal at gmail.com or DM us on our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And pretty soon, YouTube. So what's Rusty Metal this week? Rusty Metal this week is Armored Saint. March of the Saint, their 1984 debut album. It was released on Chrysalis Records, it was produced by Michael James Jackson, and it was recorded at Ocean Away Recording Studios and Clover Recording Studios in Hollywood, California, and the Village Recorder in West Los Angeles, California. As I mentioned, this is the debut album. It contains the song Stricken by Fate, Madhouse, March of the Saint, and the hit Can You Deliver. Now, Can You Deliver was a minor hit on MTV back in the day. It basically was everything you could think of into an 80s video um, back from that time period. I mean, you know, they wore the medieval costumes because that's what you did back in those days. You know, they had good songs. And so, you know, being part of the 80s L.A. metal scene, they had to do something to stand out. So... They chose the medieval times and as their gimmick and their garb and everything that they they represented was that for the first album or so. And so, you know, that was part of their video. I mean, they were these warriors. They were these, you know, guys in swords and armor and stuff like that. And it was absolutely the cheesiest thing you could think of. But back then, it wasn't cheesy. So that's that's the, the weird stuff. Uh, it was just... I mean, you th- you see it now, and it's like, come on. Very similar to uh, Queen's Reich's Queen of the Reich video. You see that video, and you're just like, oh boy, you don't want to <laughs> see that again. But yet, the the song is so cool that you know you don't mind. You know, so Armored Saint was able to get away with it because of of the times. That was just it, and and they stood out, and they got a record deal, and this album was the the result. According to John Bush and Joey Vera, years later down the road, the band was frustrated with the recording process of the album due to Michael James Jackson, the producer. Uh, he had just basically, I think the year before, had come off recording uh, Kiss's Creatures of the Night album. Now, as heavy and hard as that was, it still had a, a commercial appeal to it. It was a very polished-sounding album. Bombastic drums, but for the most part, everything else was very polished-sounding. So that's what Michael James Jackson was trying to do. He was trying to get them to be polished. He wanted them to be a little bit more commercial. And the band was like, yo, we're a heavy metal band. We want to sound like this. But they didn't have enough pull back in those days to sit there and get what they wanted. And they ended up you know, spending a ton of money. And the end result was something that they weren't happy with. But as a fan... You don't know any of these things, so this is a really cool album. I mean, the, the, you've got the really cool 
cartoony drawing, you know, for the front cover. Um, and you've got some great songs on the inside and bottom line is I would definitely check this album out again. It's still available. You can still buy the CD. I believe you can even get vinyl on it on like a special limited edition. Um, and it's still streaming. So check it out on, on, you know, any which way you can, because it's still a really cool album. Very good. I, uh, I've recently become more of a fan of Armored Saint through, um, really through you, and then listening to John Bush's stuff on Anthrax. So um, that's definitely one I need. I need to check out. All right. So this week for online pick of the week, I picked a YouTube channel called Old Head, and this guy is uh, he he's really into vinyl. If you watch any of his videos, he has a wall of vinyl behind him. He's got a pretty diverse taste in music, but he talks mostly about metal. Um, his vinyl thought series is really what interested me the most, where he takes an album, uh, oftentimes these re-releases that are coming out, and talks about the the quality of the sound um, and the and the packaging, the whole the whole you know shebang everything that that you're getting when you when you purchase one of these new uh releases and a lot of people are not into them sonically because they're not produced the same way that they they once were uh but a lot of times this is the only way you can get it on vinyl so um it's it's giving a new chance to listen to uh, an old format and so what really drew me in was I watched a video where he talked about uh, the Stomp 442 vinyl release and how disappointed he was. This guy's really positive. He only kind of reviews things that he loves. And being a, such a huge fan of, of Stomp 442 and Anthrax in general, he was really excited to get it. And uh, honestly, it's it's basically like Megaforce bootlegged the album when they, they did this Um the quality of the packaging is not great, etc. And so he kind of goes into the reasons why he, he's, you know, upset about it. And it's something that's kind of near and dear to me because the whole package is is important to me. When, when I buy um, media, I want the packaging to be nice. I want it, a book to have a nice cover. You know, it's something that I'm going to be... Uh, displaying to some degree, and I, I, I want the full package. And I, I understand where Anthrax didn't have a lot of money for this release, and, and I get it. So it is cool that they released it, but, um, you know, it's not it's not the best release they could have done. Um, but one, one other thing is he's currently reacting or doing reaction videos. I'm not a big fan of reaction videos, but uh, I know a lot of people enjoy them. They're, they're all over YouTube. But he's doing reaction videos to Metallica's uh, Blacklist cover album where all these different artists are covering their songs uh, on this one large album. So he's going through track by track and reacting. Um, and I know that's going to interest a lot of you guys out there. You know... I want to touch upon something you said with the anthrax thing and the, and the vinyl. Uh, I, I definitely want to check out this guy's channel because, because of some of the stuff that you just mentioned, but you know, I've got a beef with vinyl and I, and I don't know who, who I have to write a letter to <laughs> basically. <laughs> um, you know, if if and I mentioned this to you before, and I don't think we've ever talked about it in in on the show. If if people want if they want people to buy vinyl, which is what they're doing now, because 
it, it's this thing, you know, it, it all of a sudden has become the latest thing, you know, just like uh, cassettes are, are making a comeback because it's the latest thing. So I don't know how long this vinyl craze is going to last for, but what I have a beef with is if you don't want, or if you're trying to combat, or if you want to get something better out of digital, okay, then I think if you're if these kids are buying vinyl, I think you need to offer them a a digital download, okay? Because you, they're buying the album, yeah, that's great, and you know, in some cases they have the ability to turn it into an MP3, but in all actuality, they don't want to hear that. They want to hear just whatever they can stream, whatever they can put on their their phone or whatever it is. I I personally think there should be a digital download card with every single vinyl release that comes out there, and you know. Something like the Anthrax ones, where they didn't have enough money, uh, or they didn't have a lot of money. Put it that they had they had a budget. They tried to stay within that budget. You know, I don't know how much more would it have been to put the lyric sheet in there. You know, how much more would it have? Oh, been, for sure. Yeah. You know, to put a picture. You know, like for instance, the Sound of White Noise does not have any pictures, any lyrics on the on the sleeves of the of the record. Okay, it's the one that goes inside the actual slot. And, you know, they could have easily have put the, the, the lyrics. They could have easily put the pictures that they had on the original album, you know, on CD when it came out. They could have put those pictures in there. They could have make it, they made the total package, but they didn't because they say they were working within a budget constraint. I, I'm assuming that this budget constraint was on their, on their own because... It's a, how much money are they going to put into it? Or if maybe the label, you know, uh, Johnny Z said, you know what? I think I'm only going to put this much money into it. You know, I don't know. It, to me, you put in the, the extra few bucks, I think you're going to please the fans more. Um, so that's my beef about that the way vinyl is being presented nowadays. So many people are complaining how the pressings are. You know, you would think that 40 years later, or however many years later, is that, 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 Pressing plants would put out a better product, and you wouldn't be having shit product out there because there's only a few of them left in the world anyway. So if there if there if there's a new one starting, shit, you know, now what? Now you're gonna have a crappy uh, vinyl pressing plant, you know. So I don't I don't it should have been done or things should be done better so that people don't complain like that. So whatever. That's my rant for today. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I totally agree. Uh, the, the accessibility is obviously less when you're picking up vinyl. You know, you can't take it with you in the car, etc. So the value is only for you sitting at home. And um, it's just not as as doable today. And if you add that, that incentive of the MP3 download, um, that's going to add to the value of what you're purchasing and probably make more people make that decision to purchase it. So, you know, I, I think it's totally worth it. I agree with you. Thank you. Anyway, rant over. Um, it is now time for our main topic this week. It is white snake slided in versus white stink, the 1987 album. Um, all right. So, Slide It In was released in 1984. It was produced by Martin Birch. It was recorded at Music Land Studios in Munich, Germany. And it was released on Geffen Records through Warner Distribution in the United States and Japan. And it was 
released on Liberty Records around the rest of the world. Now, here's the interesting thing, and we're going to talk about the same thing kind of on the Whitesnake album. The recording lineup that recorded this album was not the same lineup that toured the album. So here goes. Um, the people who recorded this album were David Coverdale on vocals, Mel Galley on guitars, Mickey Moody on guitars, Colin Hodgkinson on bass, and Cozy Powell on drums, uh, and John Lord on keyboards. They recorded the album, they released the album, and it was, uh, how can I say, the, in the United States, or the, the United States counterpart, uh, for as far as the record company was concerned, was not pleased with the mix. They went back to Whitesnake or their management or whatever and said, hey, this album needs to be remixed if you want to release it in the United States. So... By that time, there was some upheaval in the band, and John Sykes was now the guitar player in the band, and so he re-recorded, I don't think he actually re-recorded, he added some guitar parts, but they did completely replace the bass parts with um, Neil Murray, who is now the new, or was the new bass player at that time. So that was the deal with who's on the record, and and ended up playing it, and, and you hear this thing, and you, you, the album sounds so different from one to the other. Uh, the UK version, which they released on a, on a special edition, releases the last couple of special editions they've done, and the US version are completely different in terms of mix and sound. Uh, to me, the sound of, of the UK version is very flat, uh, very drum bass heavy, where the US version is very guitar heavy, uh, the bass, the, the the drum is still in your face because Cozy Powell is just that kind of drummer. He's, you know, it's like I think Lars Ulrich took a a, a, a cue from Cozy in, in terms of getting your drums up in the mix. The U.S. version to me is so much better. The touring lineup. One last thing before we we go on talking about the songs. The touring lineup was David Coverdale, Mel Galley, John Sykes, Neil Murray on bass. Uh, Cozy Powell on drums, John Lord on keyboards. Midway through the tour, or close to the end, Mel Galley uh, had to leave for medical reasons. They continued the tour without Mel, and um, it was just basically a quote-unquote four-piece, but it was really a five-piece because they, they had the keyboards. And then uh, at the end of it, I believe John Lord left to redo to do the uh, Deep Purple reunion. So... They had a different keyboard player. I think his name was Bill Cuomo, who sat in the back, and they did not have him as a band member. So there's a there's a lot there with this album, and we'll, when we talk about 1987, there's similarities to that as well. Um, so you ready to get to the songs? Let's go. All right, let's do this. All right, the songs that we're going to talk about in the track order is based on the U.S. version that was released. So here we go. Slide it in. First first song in the album. To me, it's an awesome album. It, it, it's a great way to start the album out. It's got a ton of energy. It's got a catchy guitar riff, catchy melody. You know, the drums are right in your face. They're pounding you. Um, you know, it's not obnoxious, but Cozy's drumming is, is part of the show. And on this album, he definitely makes his voice heard and loud and clear. And, of course... David Coverdale's double entendre lyrics are on full display as they are throughout most of the album. What do you think of the song? I mean, based on what you were saying, 
earlier. I mean, there's there's obviously two very distinctly different versions of the song. This is definitely the superior version. Um, guitars are pushed more forward. Uh, the bass and the keyboards are reduced. It's just it's just better, and the so- the solo is is better. Um, to me, it's a better album opener than Gambler, and uh, it was the right way to start off the album. It's just a, it's just a good song that I think if you're a fan of the genre in in general, you know the song. It's one of White Snake's most recognizable tracks, and it's it's awesome. Excellent. I I love the song. It's, it's it is. It is definitely one of those high energy songs that gets you going, and that that is a great way to start the album. I don't know what they were thinking by putting Gambler on the UK version. Um, I don't even think Slide It In shows up to like middle of the album on in the UK version. It doesn't, yeah. So it it, it's it, it. I don't. Know, they definitely did did themselves a great service by rearranging the tracks. Number two, Slow and Easy. Now this is one of my favorite White Six songs. Um, it is again. Uh, you know, catchy melody, catchy chorus. This is a sleazy blues sounding track, uh, which blends perfectly with the lyrics because it's just all, I mean, it's sleazy is a bad word, but at the same time, you kind of get the drift when it comes to this song. This is a really cool song. This is one of those get down and boogie kind of songs, even though it's slow for the most part. It's just one of these songs that, that just, grabs you in that way um again double entendre lyrics from david you know the build up to this song to me is awesome you know and i love the call and response chorus that's used at the end and that tells you that this song is going to be one of those concert staples where they get the crowd going you know it's funny this could easily be a led zeppelin track um one thing that stands out to me is there was a comment from David Coverdell a long time ago where he talked about how uh, Cozy didn't quite get the White Snake sound because he wanted things to be heavier and he had his style of drumming, which, I mean, if you know Cozy Powell, like he, he's a heavy drummer. Um, everything he did from Rainbow to, you know, to this, uh, you know, he's, he just, he has a very distinct sound. And, uh, while I get that, I feel like even though he's really straightforward in his way of drumming, it works with the bluesy sound. Like there's an offset there that I really like, um, and uh, it's I can kind of see like you know it is different than the bluesy sound, but it's funny how on the next album they would go to a more rock and metal sound than bluesy. So it, it's it's funny that he made that comment, and it's almost like he didn't realize the direction the band was going. Well, I mean, it's it's weird because um, even though the the next album is more rock and metal, if you listen to certain songs, they're they're I mean, squarely rooted in the blues. It's just oh, absolutely. It's but just John a Sykes different. Was right, not as much into blues. So there's there is a change. Yeah. So yeah. But it's funny that you say that because, you know, uh, Cozy, I think the album would have been, you know, if Cozy had stuck around for Whitesnake, that would have been a completely different sounding album. But it may have even been harder and that would have made it even that much better. But yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of what I was getting at. It's just it's it's like David Coverdale didn't realize that, you know, that they were going to go that direction anyway. So. <laughs> right. All right. So the next song. Uh, is Love Ain't No Stranger. 
another concert staple. This is one of their biggest songs that they had up to that point. Um, it starts very similar to Slow and Easy, where it's it's quiet, but it quickly kicks in right there at the end of the first verse. And um, the lyrics to me are a little bit deeper. This is this is almost you know one of those ode to you know love type of songs. It's it's a love song in his in David Coverdale's kind of way. Um, again, you know David is is a is a master of of catchy melodies, catchy you know hooks. He's a master of hooks. You know, and that's what attracts me to White Snake so much. Um, and so you know that's that's a big trend on this album, the hooks and the catchy choruses and the catchy melodies and all that stuff. Um, and here's the funny thing we were just talking about. According to Wikipedia, you know, Cozy Powell, and mind you, let, let's all understand, Cozy Powell passed away many years ago, so he is the late drummer, Cozy Powell, once told Coverdale that this song, Love Ain't No Stranger, was the best track that he ever played drums on. So that's a that's a high compliment for David and, and Cozy just being, you know, such a good drummer to sit there and say that that was the best track he ever played on is, is pretty cool to say, you know? Um, yeah. What, what do you think of that song? You know, I, I really like it. It's, you know, it's a power ballad that, that has energy behind it, which is awesome. Um, but one thing I noticed is that it's basically a sped up version of let me put my love into you. It's got that dun 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 dun, and it's just it's the it's it's really similar when you listen to it. Mm. Um, the chorus is different, but it's just I I can't unhear that that uh, similarity <laughs> to let me put my love into you. Um, the solo's awesome, and I just I just love the guitar tone on this track. Yeah, that's 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 the thing that the whole the whole remix and the way that the guitars came out was so much better. It really um, is. The next track is All or Nothing. Again, another catchy riff with a very groovy verse. The title of the song, though, is 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 oddly placed in the first verse, you know, and then the chorus to the song is a repeating version of repeating line of Too Late, um, which is kind of odd. They repeat it so much that you would think that the same the, the title of the song is Too Late, but it's not. It's All or Nothing. Um so it may have been the working title and they changed it for whatever reason, but hey, you know, it is what it is. The song to me is notable for not having a guitar solo, but rather a keyboard solo um, by the late, great John Lord. And to me, it's another really good song on this album. Yeah, it's it's a really cool track. Something I noticed about it, though, is it's basically a simplified version of ZZ Top's Tush. <laughs> <laughs> so instead of a dun da dun it's dun 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 it's it's the same it's the same notes. There's only so, so many chords in blues, man. <laughs> I, I know, but it's it's good. I it, the thing is that even though um, it does have that similarity, it, the track is just fire, and it, it it kicks ass. The mix is really what makes it even stronger. Is that the sound quality? Um, and the and the guitar tone is coming through really well, and I and I I really like it for that reason. You know, it's funny that you bring up the song "Tush" from ZZ Top. When I saw White Snake at the height of their popularity for the 1987 album, um, the encore they played "Tush," mm -hmm. right? But David Coverdale comes out and says, "All right, we're going to change the title of this song, and now we're going to call the song Titties.'" 
So, oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know, back then, you know, it wasn't such a PC world. Um, but they, they, you know, they were just, you know, heading downtown looking for some titties. So that was the, <laughs> that was the line of the song. I mean, and the crowd's going crazy. You know, they're just singing along and, and they would stop when they got to that part and everybody would yell titties. So it was, it was a pretty fun song at the time. And it's a great way to end the show. <laughs> different right, time. So, say what? Different time. Oh yeah. Different time. All right. Um, song number five is the gambler or gambler. Um, and that would have, that was the original lead track. And there's nothing wrong with this song. This song is real cool. It's a, it's a moody, very groovy song. Uh, I like how the guitar solo copies the keyboard solo, you know, in a very similar sound and very similar flow. But, you know, it, it belongs like this is this is the last song on side one. That's a perfect song to end the side or a perfect way to end the side. It's not a good way to start an album. So it's one of those odd things. It works so much better here in the five spot than it does in the one spot. I like the song, so. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a slow plotter, but it's it's got a lot of energy behind it, and I think that's mostly coming from the, the rhythm section. And it, it's it sounds just very determined. Like, I imagine you could put this on when you're, like, walking, you know, or, you know, getting your your workout started and it would get that like that energy kind of going you know it's one of those tracks where it's not quite like break out into a run but it's like let's go and i think that may have been why they they wanted it you know as the first song it's just one of those build-up kind of things but but that's not the way to start an album no it's not the way to (laughs) me it's the way to start a workout but it's not the way to start an album but you know what's funny is like you know bands today you know like for instance pearl jam Every one of their concerts, if I'm not mistaken, and I and I haven't seen a concert of theirs in a while, but the ones that I went to, every single one of them started with a ballad, like a slow ballad. You know, one of yeah. one of their really, really, really slow songs. The second song of the concert was the energy song. So that's just one of those weird things. That was their style, very similar to how, you know, uh you know, uh Metallica comes out to the Ecstasy of Gold and Iron Maiden comes out to Doctor Doctor. You know that was their thing. Pearl Jam would come out to a ballad of theirs. You know, but in this particular case, this is not a style thing that that White Snake was doing. It just so that just a bad choice at the time. Well, I mean, especially because it starts with that that uh, keyboard intro, which it's a really cool keyboard intro, but it just doesn't to me. It doesn't like give that energy that that it needs to start off the album. So. Right. Anyway, um, good song, but you know it's it's perfect where it's at right now. Number six or side one, or excuse me, number six or song one of side two, uh, "Guilty of Love," um, high energy song, catchy verse, really cool chorus. Uh, dual harmony guitars are the signature of this song, and along with uh, along with the call and response type chorus, um, it's the first single that was released on the album, and while it's a great song, it was only a small sample of how good this album actually is at the time it was released. This single was released four months ahead of the UK release of the album. And the version that got released was the original Eddie Kramer production and mix. Because Eddie Kramer was a, was the uh, original producer that was tapped to do this album. But there was just a... a um, 
David and Eddie just did not see eye to eye as far as the production of the album and, and the, the direction that they were going in. So they replaced him with Martin Birch, famous for Deep Purple and uh, Iron Maiden at the time. So the B-side was The Gambler. So uh, if you get this single, you have two different versions, basically, of The Gambler and uh, Guilty of Love. Now, the funny thing is if you have the album... Uh, the UK album and the US album. There's three. There's literally three different versions of this song out there, um, but it's it's cool that way. They later released these single versions on the anniversary edition. So if you have those, you'll have everything. Um, it's a cool song. I like the song a lot, um, especially that whole dual harmony thing that they got going on. That Thin Lizzy vibe that they have on the song. I mean, David Coverdale borrowed a lot of things from a lot of bands. Thin Lizzy. You know, uh, Led Zeppelin, ZZ Top. Those are all just borrowed. And that's just an ode to the, to the, they're all blues bands. Now you think about it. <laughs> so they're all got the same kind of things going on. But he definitely took things from a lot of different people. Yeah. I mean, that, that's one of my biggest notes here was the guitar harmonies. It's, it, it really makes the song. It's really up tempo. I let, I love the track. The pace of it is is it's probably one of my favorite tracks on the album. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty cool pretty cool song. And the video for this song is a live concert video, and uh, that's out there. And it's a really cool thing because they it, they've got clips from different shows, and there's a lot. It's big crowds in the UK, so it's pre- it's pretty cool. Um, the next track is a song called "Hungry for Love." This song's got a cool groove to it, and that's compliments of Cozy's drumming. But it's one of the weaker songs on the album, if in my opinion. It's still a cool little bit of a rocker, but um, not one of their best songs in the album. But the interesting thing, well, not a but, but interestingly enough about this song, it has a guitar solo that is literally two measures long, in time, it's actually just under eight seconds for a guitar solo, and that's it follows the pre-chorus melody. Uh, that's the that's the the melody that's used in the solo. So it's really very interesting how it's just such a small, tiny solo. So I noticed something when listening to this song. Mm-hmm. Um, it's White Snake doing the Rolling Stones with "It's Only Rock and Roll, But I Like It." It's really similar, and um, it, at this point, you can kind of hear, like, there's so many of these tracks that have this similarity to uh, bands that are, have, have broken and been popular in America, and I almost feel like he strategically did this because it was like sampling and trying to figure out what was going to work to break America, which is what he was trying to do at this point. You know, he, he explicitly said he was trying to break America. And so I almost fa- I almost feel like tracks like this and Love It Ain't No Stranger and Slow and Easy were all like just trying to figure out, you know, what's going to be the sound. Yeah, what's going to work in the U.S. To me, this is not the one. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not. It, again, like I said, it was it's a. Uh, I mean, Cozy is what helps this song along. And for the most part, it's as much help as it could get. And it it didn't do much for me. 
Um, so that brings us to the next song, which is "Give Me Some More," uh, "Give Me More Time," and that's a catchy song and has a very similar groove to "Slide It In," uh, but the song itself just doesn't have that it factor like "Slide It In" does, uh, and so it doesn't really ever get to that next level. Like I mentioned before, you know, it's catchy. The chorus is catchy. Guitar solo is very melodic. Uh, it ends just before it becomes a little too long. Um, you know, it, it the solo, it, it almost began like there was just so many notes. It was just going, he was going off on it. And it all of a sudden it was like, hey, let's reel that puppy in. You know, so they, they brought the guitar solo back down but because it was going nowhere. And it, it finally just ended and it, it continued the song from there. It was one of those really weird solos for me. Um, the song, again, not one of the best songs on it, but it's a, it's a pretty decent song. So, it, as far as the solo goes, I actually do like the solo a lot, but I think it's it's partially maybe the problem that you have with it is that it it's in a kind of mediocre track. So That, that may be it, too. Yeah, it just it, it feels like it's maybe too much for this track. And it is an awesome solo, but it's just... Yeah, it just, it just you, doesn't. Not that you put it that way, yeah, because there's a lot going on with the solo. Yeah, and it, it's I, I think it doesn't f- necessarily fit the song the way it, it could, and so I yeah. can I can see that I can see that it has kind of this journey sound to it, and I almost feel like that was intentional as well. So, you know, it's it, it, I don't know it, it to me it's not a great track. It has all these different elements, like it's kind of an ACDC sounding vibe like it doesn't it doesn't sound like any specific acdc song but it has that like that uh kind of repetitive nature that you know you're kind of bobbing to the song you know and so it has that and then it goes into this kind of journey solo which doesn't really fit that vibe so i think that's that's kind of what the, the the disconnect is there while both parts are good it just it's not it's not cohesive Exactly. So the next song is Spit It Out. Um, the song starts off with just the main riff. Uh, and then, it you know, it's a start-stop kind of riff. And then it's joined in by the drums. It's catchy. Uh, it's not one of the best songs in the album. So it, there's, there's, you know, it, you're getting to the point where it's like, all right, is there anything else on this album that's going to st- stand out for me? And in reality, it... it as good as let's say standing in the shadow is which is the next song this song kind of just says yeah we got a great riff we just didn't really know what to do with it because the chorus to me is not is not one of those hook choruses so it doesn't really reel you in you know i think it, it, that's what lacks on this song you know, what, what, it, yeah it's it's repetitive and kind of boring like there's just not much to it right the solo the solo's good again but that's it it's just it doesn't really fit because it's it's better than the track it's sitting in, and um, yeah, it, it's almost like I I kind of wish they had just, just skipped this track and went right into Standing in the Shadow. Right now, Standing in the Shadow is a song that closes out the album. Um, it's got a really cool bass line on there. It grooves um, the song, you know, it grooves throughout. You know, with it's got a cool catchy chorus. The lead guitar melodies are really good. So there's, there's it's a it's a good. I mean, it's not uh, an outstanding track, but it's a good, solid track to end the album. Uh, yeah, to me, I think it's a really good closer. 
Like it, like you said, it's it's not the it's not the best track on the album by any means, but it's it's energetic. Um, it's it's probably one a lot of people miss out on because you know how it goes. You're ten tracks in. A lot of people have have either stopped listening because they've reached their destination or something along those lines. So it's probably one that gets missed. But I think it's a track worth listening to. The solo fits in really nice. Um, the backing vocals on this track in particular are are really good. Like they fit the 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 song really well, and I think that's something that that's kind of lacking on some of the other tracks on the album is that the there's no backing vocals here and there. Like and and they can definitely do that. So um, it shows that there's there's more of a dimension to the band that's that's kind of. Uh, developing but unfortunately um it may be too little too late in the lineup uh you know having some of these songs that weren't that great before it uh to really benefit from exactly so that ends slide it in it's a slide it in is is an excellent album you know i i remember getting this album when i was a kid i mean I let's say it came out in 84. I probably got it in 85, maybe 86, but I had seen the video. So it was a really, really cool album. And this is one of those albums that it just, for me, I, I always go back to, you know, both actually both of these albums are ones I always go back to, but this one tends to, I tend to go back a little bit uh, back to a little bit more. And it, it's, it's this thing where, you could see that they were ready to break. And for me, when I, when I saw, let's say, slow, the Slow and Easy video and I, and I knew about this band, when I saw uh, Still of the Night, the video that came out for, for that, that basically led off the White Snake album, I was like, what band is this? Uh, this is not the same band that I saw a few years ago. But... At the same time, it was really freaking cool. <laughs> so, and we're going to talk about that 1987 album right now. So, uh, do you have anything else you want to say about Slide It In? I mean, I think it's a it's a really good album with some great tracks. It's a bit inconsistent, um, but I mean, there's so many great albums that are. It's it, it's not some. I wouldn't say it's not a classic album because there's a few tracks that are skippable. Because it is a classic album, it and it and it really shows a time in White Snake's career where they went from a band that was probably never going to break America to um, to one that that showed that they they were more than capable of it. So they took they they went to the next level with this album, and this the 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 mix is really good. That's another thing to note on there. So. Um, Definitely a really good album and and a classic in my eyes. You know, by this time in in the eighties, we're talking nineteen eighty four. Um, David Coverdale is a veteran of the English music scene. He was lead singer for Deep Purple for several years, um, and he then became you know when when Deep Purple broke up, he then formed David Coverdale's White Snake. Which then became White Snake, and they had good albums, but they were they were they, the look that they had was completely, you know, uh, bar band look. You know, they had the 
they they were looking like they were out of the late sixties or early seventies in the late seventies and early eighties. So they had that very strange look for them. And they just, you know, the David wanted something else. David wanted that American piece of the pie. And so he worked at it and he worked at it and he worked at it and he kept pushing. And that's really the reason why the band that recorded this album, Mel Galley, Mickey Moody, that's why it fell apart because he was, David was going in a different direction. These guys were kind of just in that lane and David went in that direction because he knew he could do it. And he had John Kalodner, which is the guy who basically helped Aerosmith revive their career. And he gave, Whitesnake a, a better career they got all the way th- through that album to get to this next album Whitesnake 1987 um, as long as as far as I knew Whitesnake the album that came out in 1987 was known as Whitesnake um, apparently somewhere else in the world it was known as 1987 I never knew that until years later <laughs> so I I'm just learning this now. Yeah, it was you know if you if you read about it, you know apparently out in you know in in Eastern Europe it was known as 1987 in some some other parts of the world, and you know obviously there was you know there are there's an English version or or not not even English a European version of this of this album that has a different different track listing. It has different songs on it. Which is so weird. I, I never understood why, like, you know, the Beatles or the Rolling Stones, they have different albums than, you know, and ACDC that are released elsewhere and in the United States is something completely different. You know, I, well, I mean, I completely understand why. It's It has to do with different sensibilities. Um, and, I, and I've kind of, you know, learned more about this over the years where um, I was, I've watched some videos where they talk about, you know, what, what works in Europe versus what works here. And there's just, there's, there's different musical sensibilities. So some bands may break Europe and become uh, really popular there, but never take off here. They may be a one hit wonder here, but in the rest of the world, they may be huge. And so, like, like say, for instance, Mr. Big. I think we were talking about them earlier today. Um, Mr. Big was one of those bands that they, they didn't really do much here. But in Japan, they're like the Beatles. You know, they're huge. So it, it's just one of those things, like, some tracks... It just it just doesn't have that same sensibility. The UK version, they may not want that big bombastic intro to be you know there. So they do what works, and the producer thinks about you know what's going to work with that that uh, that country. So I I get it, but the the music scene is is you know it's bigger here. And that's what he was trying to, to get into. He had the piece of the pie in Europe. He wanted to come here and break it. And that's what he did with, with this album. I mean, I get I get all that, right? The But the issue I have with it is, for instance, like, you know, the Beatles recorded a, a, an album in, in England, okay? But in the United States, they release a single or vice versa. I can't remember what it is, you know? And that single never shows up on the album. I mean, to me, that's kind of like, that's weird, you know? 
And they, that, that happens a lot, or happened, because it's not like... Happened that, a lot. It's not it's, like that right, anymore. Right, it's not yeah. like that anymore. But, you know, the Rolling Stones, same thing. They had songs that were popular. Now, I, I get there's different sensibilities. So, to me, that, that should be where the focus is on the singles. You know, oh, we, in the United States, we're going to put this single out. But, you know, in, in Europe, we're going to put this single out. I get that. But I don't get the fact, like, for instance, you know, ACDC. High Voltage, two completely different albums. What came out in the United States and what came out in Australia, two completely different albums. And I think they share one or two songs, you know. And but then, yeah. but then they release another album, TNT or vice, vice, vice versa. Excuse me. One of the which one I can't remember right off the top of my head came out first. I think TNT. They they have the same songs that would be High Voltage in the United States. In in Australia, it was High Voltage and then TNT. And then after TNT, we released our version of High Voltage, which was basically TNT with a couple tracks from High Voltage. From High Voltage. Right. And then later, there was the, the Jailbreak the, uh, EP, which had a lot of the songs that were from the original High Voltage album. Right, and, that, and that's literally so, 10 years after the fact. Yeah, and and I again I get it where they were trying to figure out what tracks would work in the U.S. and and uh, honestly, I I don't get what they were thinking there, but I know that's the reasoning. I know that's what what they were thinking. in that particular I just don't case. Agree with it because I the high voltage that came out in the, in Australia was predominantly a covers album, you know, blues, you know, ACDC covers album. That's fine, you know, but then they put out TNT. And in the United States, they name it the same thing as the first album as ACDC in, in Australia. Okay, you know what? You you want to use the same name? Or it, that's that's fine. It's just weird to me, you know. And I understand they didn't in the United States. They didn't release those songs um, until '74 Jailbreak, and that was just basically so they could take advantage of the fact that Bond had passed away, and they had some leftover tracks that were not available in the United States, but they were available as an import, you know. I get that marketing scheme, you know, the the things that with, with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones was just so odd, and so that makes what happened with White Snake even stranger because the the European version of White Snake, nineteen eighty seven, got has eleven songs on it. The American version has nine songs, and that's just strange. But we but we've learned many times that more songs aren't necessarily better. Yeah. <laughs> Load. I like I like this this lineup better to be honest. The the nine songs? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go over this real quick. White Snake was produced by Mike Stone and Keith Olsen. Um it was released on Geffen Records and it was recorded in several places, um, of which Little Mountain Sound Studios in Vancouver, British Columbia, Phase One Studios in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And British Columbia also being in Canada, for those who don't know. Uh, Compass Point Studios in Nassau, Bahamas, and Cherokee Studios and One-on-One Studios in Los Angeles, California. Uh, so that was recorded all over the place. Um, so here again, we have another situation where the recording lineup is completely different than the touring lineup. So much so that the, that the recording lineup is not even in the videos before they started the tour. So they completely different lineup. So there's the video slash touring lineup, which is the same the same lineup. 
David Coverdale, uh, obviously, on vocals. John Sykes on guitar. Neil Murray on bass. And Ansley Dunbar on drums. And that's the four guys that recorded the album. They also had some keyboard uh, accompaniment from Don Airy and Bill Cuomo. That is the, 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 the band that recorded the album. The band that, that toured and did the videos was David, Adrian Vandenberg on guitars, Vivian Campbell on guitars, uh, Rudy Sarzo on bass, and Tommy Aldridge on drums. That's the famous band that everyone knows. So everyone thinks that's the band that recorded the album, and that could be the furthest thing from the truth. Um, and Adrian even played the guitar solo, and here I go again on the main album. So it is weird that that is the way it laid itself out. Two albums in a row, the band's completely changed. Um, so, all right. So the album starts off with "Crying in the Rain," which is a re-recorded version of a 1982 track. Um, it's amazing, and honestly, far better than the original. Uh, if you can listen to both very easily, they're on streaming. Um, definitely recommend that. One is definitely more bluesy than than, or the original is definitely more bluesy than this version. Um, the guitar work of John Sykes and the rhythm section of Neil Murray and Ainsley Dunbar uh, just improved the track so much to me. It this it, it takes it from being a blues song to a metal song, and I I understand that David Coverdale say, has stated that John Sykes hated the blues, so it definitely takes on more of a glam metal sound. But the change totally works for me. Um, I love the solo and the build up at the end. The way it just it it grows and grows uh, takes it to this new level of emotion on the track, and it's just excellent. I, w- I was listening to this on the way home today, and and that solo at the end that just keeps going and going. There is a lot of emotion. We mentioned we touched uh, upon emotion on on a previous episode, and how how notes or one note or a million notes can affect you, and this one just. There's so much emotion on that song from from David singing um, where you could really, really feel the pain in his heart to the guitar playing that John Sykes, as much as he hates the blues, he really pulled off a really great, you know, uh, performance on this song. And that guitar solo at the end where it just keeps going and the drum is just blasting in the background and the whole band... It is awesome because it almost sounds like the song is going to end and they're just going at the, you know, they're just going at all notes and hitting all the, everything that they can hit and it, it all comes back together. And that's really cool part of the song. Um, it, it is what I call this version is bombastic in comparison to the original. And even though the original version is kind of hits hard because it's a dry production, it just no, it doesn't hit anywhere near as hard as this version, and this is just awesome. I love this song. So the second track is Bad Boys. It's an up-tempo rocker with just a killer drum beat. The guitar solo is exhilarating and fast-paced. It leads into an awesome guitar harmony. Like this, this track just keeps going. I mean, it's it's simple lyrically, but it doesn't need to be more complicated. It knows exactly what it is, and it's just fun. It's it's like one of those tracks you just roll your windows down to with your buddies in the car and just jam to. Like it's it's bad boys and and you know to to quote Martin Lawrence, "Bad boys for life." <laughs> it's weird. We were just talking about how Gambler doesn't work 
on Slide It In. But Gambler's a slow, groovy song. Crying in the Rain is a heavy blues song that works as an opener. But in reality, Bad Boys to me should have been the opener of the album. Because it was like the opener of the concert when you went to go see them. So you knew this song was going to be that type of song. So to me, it should have opened the album. But okay, fine. Crying in the Rain opened it. This song still rocks. This song kicks ass. Um, it's a starter type song. But, you know, it's got it's got a great melody catchy pre-chorus chorus i mean this everything's got it it's got everything going for it so it's a really cool song i like it a lot absolutely it's it's one of my favorite tracks on the album uh the third track is still of the night uh written by coverdale and sykes it's a killer track um opener of the european version and i can see why i mean it's it, it to me it's more of an opener than crying in the rain and i agree bad boys would be even a better opener um but both white snake and john sykes play this live to this day um it's easily one of their most re- recognizable tracks and following bad boys in this order it keeps that pace going and i think it's just perfect yeah i this definitely could have opened the album and and, and i guess in the european version it did so it it, it it was one of those kinds of songs this song is a classic the video is a classic you know, there, it, it's, it, it reminds you of Led Zeppelin, especially like, you know, there's a lot of similarities to Black Dog on this, you know, song. So it, it's it's just a great, great song. I love the breakdown, you know, three quarters of the way into the song. It gets all quiet and, you know, it's got the little drum beat going on and, and you know, there's the echo. So almost there's a similarity. It's not the same pace, but there's a similarity to Whole lot of Love when it, when it hits the breakdown. Um so there's a lot of odes to Led Zeppelin on this song. The, my biggest beef with this song, and in, in, in reality there isn't, is the video because of the way that, you know, the, I think it's Adrian who's playing the bow on the guitar solo. And it, I mean, if anyone knows anything about music, <laughs> there's just no way to do that on a guitar without it sounding nothing like that <laughs> he was wait well they they, ex- they explore that in spinal tap you know, <laughs> i mean jimmy page you know, that, again this is another ode to led zeppelin jimmy page did that in concert but he didn't do anything like that his was more in a, you know drug experimental shit that happened in the 70s but to think that you know or to to purport to the, to the general viewing public that, you know, you play this bow and you're going to get that very smooth sound is, is uh, preposterous, but yet it's, it worked. It was the eighties. People loved it. People still think it's like that. It's really cool to see. You see the freaking bow getting shredded and it's, it's cool. But it doesn't, you know, it, for people who are musicians, it was like, you know, it's like shaking your head or smacking your forehead. <laughs> so that's my mm-hmm. only beef. I really, really do love this song. It has got such a great groove. So it, it's, like I said, it's a classic. It's awesome. All right. So the next track is Here I Go Again. Um, this is the single that everyone knows. Everyone. I mean, uh, y- if you're listening to this and you don't know it, you probably haven't been listening to any radio or music in the last you know 20 30 years uh it's an anthem that appeals to everyone beyond metal fans and has massive crossover appeal uh 
Coverdale did exactly what he was trying to do all those years where he was trying to break America with this track. It's simplistic, yet it blasts you in the face with that riff. The lyrics, Here I Go Again, it just it's it's just one of those tracks that everyone can relate to on some level. Um, interesting note, the radio mix that was recorded with Dan Huff, uh, Denny Carmassi, and actually a friend of my dad's, uh, Mark Andes, who had played with Hart. Um, my dad became friends with him, I want to say like 10, 15 years ago. And I had no idea he was on the radio edit of this song, um, so, which is kind of cool. That's very cool. That's very cool. I love this song. This is obviously another classic. Um, as as you mentioned, you know, it's it's one of these songs that everybody knows. It's got a catchy chorus. I mean, to me, it's it it's it's on the level of "Don't Stop Believing," where. Everybody knows this song. Everybody sings this song. Every you know, as soon as it comes on the radio, they everybody cranks it up. You know, it's one of those songs that they play a bajillion times, and for whatever reason, it's not. It's one of those that just you don't get tired of. Like I think people are tired of hearing Hotel California, you know, but they but they still love it. You know, they it's it's one of those songs. You know, but this one to me, it's it's even higher than that. You know, and that may be sacrilegious to a lot of people out there, but too bad. Um, and this is a remake um, that from the same album, Saints and Sinners, that Crying in the Rain was from. And again, much better version. <laughs> when you talk about production, you put those two songs together and you can tell what a good producer can do for you. Now, oddly enough, let's not take away from the producer who produced the original, which is Martin Birch, because he's done some classic albums. But that was just the style at the time that they were playing. That was the band. They were a blues band, and they were a hard blues band, and that's the way the album was was recorded. You know, David wanted to break America. He wanted a more polished sounding. He wanted something that sounded like America. He wanted a producer that produced hits in America. That's what they got. The one funny thing about this between the original version and this version is there's a change in the lyrics. Um, real simple, but... Um, the, the line, uh, like a drifter, I was born to walk alone, on the original version, he had written, uh, like a hobo, I was born to walk alone. And um, John Kalodner, again, the master of changing a lyric here and there, he had David change it to drifter, it became classic, and they did not offend any clowns. So, <laughs> so um, again, something to, to, to what you said... Um, this song has been remixed so many times. I'm utterly annoyed by every single remix that comes out of this with this song. I love the original that's on this album. It is to me the best version that's on that's out there. The remix is too, you know, that the, the the radio hit was too keyboardy. I don't know what your dad's friend played. Was he a guitar player or a keyboard player? He's the bass, bass player. Fine. You know what? You want to replace Neil Murray's bass? Go right ahead. But I still like the original version that's on this album better. And I, oh. I, I preface it by saying this version that's on this album. Right. It's it's the definitive version, and the musicians that he played with here were were amazing. It's it's too bad that he fired them all. Um, but, but, uh, you know, this, this is the definitive version to me, not the radio edit. No. And, and a quick thing of note for some people who may not know, who don't read Wikipedia or, you know, stuff like that. Um, 
there was a point in time where there's there was obviously contention between John Sykes and David Coverdale. That's the reason why John got fired. Um, you know, rumor was that John wanted to continue because uh, actually, let, let me go back to the beginning. David's vocals uh, got hurt. He, he basically injured his his vocal cords and had to have he got it was like a, a sinus congestion or nasal problem that he had. He had to let his vocal cords heal. He had to let his whole head heal. It took a long time to the point where John Sykes wanted to continue without him, or so the rumor goes. John purports to this day that that's not the case, because how are you going to change David Coverdale? It's his band. But So I don't necessarily believe that that John was trying to necessarily get rid of, of uh, Coverdale. It was more to me sort of like what Don Dawkin did with Klaus Mine, where he kind of helped or was, you know, did the demos because he had a very similar high pitched voice. And I think that's what John was maybe trying to do was to get on with the recordings. And then later on, David could come in and, and redo the vocals. But I think that's what John was trying to do. And I just probably came across the wrong way. And that's how that rumor got started. So that's why it took three years between uh, which one called Slide It In and this album to come out because David was getting was uh, in rehab essentially trying to heal his throat. So there's a lot to this song. There's a lot to this album that you know not a lot of people know. But uh, again, here I go again. It's a killer song. All right. So the next track is "Give Me All Your Love." It's a bit more bluesy in tempo and rhythm. Uh, but Sykes keeps it rock with his guitar tone and solo. Uh, the mix is really nice and makes the blues and rock sound combine really well. Um, I'd be at sorry, I'd be at more blues shows if blues was this up tempo, because it is it is an awesome mix of blues and rock. It's it's a good track. I think you got to find the right the right guy to go see, you know. Uh, in, when it comes to blues, because there's certain guys that are just gonna bring it all the time, you know, um, they're not all gonna be sappy, you know, blues dudes. This song is awesome. I love the chorus on this song. I love the melody of the verses. It's it's just a great song. Um, my only knock on this song is is to me the guitar solo has so much reverb on it. It feels like it's being played in another room, and you and, and they open a the door so you can hear the solo. That's the only knock on it. So it's a production knock. It's not a knock on the song itself. Um, so that's it. But I give me all your love. That I love that song. I mean, they, I think they still play it in concert today. Uh, so that's it's a really really good track. It, it's a, got one of those you know sing along choruses. Uh, they do a breakdown of it in concert. So you got the the call and response part going on there. So this is definitely one of the killer tracks on this on this album. Absolutely. The next track is Is This Love, uh, the power ballad, which has been rumored to have been written for Tina Turner. <laughs> <It's>, okay. <laughs> yeah, and I can kind of see that when I think about it. Um, it's simple yet to the point, and it's just romantic. You know, it's it's a good track. Um, it's one of the one of the earliest uh, tracks that that Sykes and Coverdale wrote together, uh, showing that they were trying to really get that crossover appeal. It- that's strange that I didn't know that that was one of the earlier songs. Um, mm-hmm. I can see the link to Tina Turner because of, of the of that song that she had. What's love got to do with it? Uh, it's it's there's a lot of similarities and thought 
I, I think to this song because of the, the the pace, you know, that what's love got to do with it is got that it's a very similar pace, even though this one's a little slower. I can see that. I can see that. Um, this is to me the obligatory ballad. Um, it's a good song. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. It's a great video. Tony Katane spread all over the car. I get it. You know, uh, God rest her soul. Um, it is those. It is a typical '80s power ballad, and it worked for White Snake. It it did the job. It was the crossover appeal. There was a good follow up to Here I Go Again. Um, you know, you've got this big hit and here I go again and you got to follow it up with something else and and is this love was was I think the perfect follow-up back in that in that day so kudos to to White Snake for doing that it brings like because there are so many different dimensions of the the band in this album you know you've got crying in the rain which is very emotional and kind of sad you've got bad boys that's that's high energy still of the night that's that's just one of those, you know, recognize like instantly recognizable tracks. You've got "Give Me All Your Love" with more bluesy. Is this love a power ballad? So they're they're showing a lot of sides of themselves, but it's still cohesive, and it's mostly cohesive because it's a band that's that's written and worked together, uh, f- you know, for a little bit of time at least. So, um, yeah, it, it's a good addition to this album for sure, especially in its placement. Um, the next track is Children of the Night, and I really like this track. It's it's a really energetic '80s sounding track. Um, it could easily have been a Dio song, you know. It reminds me of something kind of like Stand Up and Shout, um, and, and I just I I can picture like listening to this this song. I could definitely picture Dio performing it on stage, um, and the solo is just. It's like riding on a roller coaster. It's it is awesome. You know, I it, this is one of those times where I have to disagree with you. As it's a good song, don't let me take that away from it. Uh, it's got a cool riff, but overall, to me, it kind of feels stock. You know, to to quote Lars Ulrich, it's a little stock, or maybe I'm quoting James Hetfield. <laughs> They were both arguing about that. Um, it was James. <laughs> you know, um, the the pre-chorus has got a good melody. I like it. But um, what, what really drives it down for me is the cheesy chorus. You know, are you ready to rock, children of the night? Are you ready to roll, children of the night? You know, it's like, come on. We're we still on that rock and roll bit, you know. And, yeah, we are because people dug it. You know, but that's this is where that that song kind of loses it for me a little bit in the lyrics, uh, there. You know, so again, it's really upbeat, it's up tempo, it's got it, it's a good groove, but it it's almost like a stock up tempo song to me. Hmm, I, I find that kind of funny, being that you're a fan of Kiss, because it's. <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, it worked in 1975. <laughs> I got you. And it, that's why I said it works for like Dio would would put this song out and it'd be it would be a a, a banger. So I don't know. You are right because Dio was like that too, you know, stand up and shout, you know, we rock. Yeah. Um it, it was, you know, but that was also like a few years before this album. So it, I don't know. It, it's to me it, it like I said, it's not a bad song, but it it just comes across a little cheesy on the lyrics you know and, and they look kiss is full of cheesy lyrics from then to now 
So I'm not going to, uh, I get what you're saying, you know, <laughs> so I gotta, I have to defend myself somehow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the next track is straight for the heart. Um, it's another eighties rocker. That's a lot of fun. The opening riff hooks and keeps you to the end. I mean, it's one of those tracks that's definitely of its time. <laughs> it didn't, it didn't age into the next generation very well. It feels very eighties. Um, but if you love that time, which we do, it's a lot of fun. And the solos from Sykes have not led up to this point. This is track eight, and the the solos are still awesome at this point in the album. You know, and I give Sykes that. You know, he he he's a great guitar player, very accomplished. It's a, it's a shame that he's kind of hidden away for the last thirty something years. Um, but you know, he uh, he only comes out to play you know once every decade or so. So. Supposedly he was supposed to come out right before the pandemic hit, but who knows? He's he's just reclusive that way. Um, who knows? But he is an amazing guitar player. Um, you know he he did. I think he he did his time with uh, he did some time with um, Thin Lizzy as well. You know, so it's he's a great guitar player. Don't don't take it away from him. Um, but in this for this song for me, it's another stock song. You know, I don't know. It, it's it, it it's an up tempo song, rather stock. It's just it's the next it's the second to last song in the album. Let's get on with it. Let's go. Come on, you know <laughs> that's what I'm getting at from here. So I guess I it's funny. I just I I think it's it's funny that you feel this way, but I I guess at the same time like it does feel a little bit different in tone to some of the other songs in the album. I do. I, I, I just guess I get that v, that Dio vibe or bands like kick or, or, you know, that were more, um, more eighties driven than, than trying to, to have that kind of pop appeal. Um, and I guess that's, that's why I like it so much, but I do like these tracks a lot. I, um, I, 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 I see where you're coming from. What I think is what's happening is that the, the first six songs on this album are so good that it, they overshadow the, the regularity of these other songs. I, I wouldn't say good as much as they're so pop. And that's kind of the difference where this is, these are more metal songs. So that's maybe the difference. I, they are good, don't get me wrong, but I think they're more pop, and it's it's like a different vibe. Yeah, so. I, I, I can see that. Um, so the last track is my least favorite on the album, but it's still a good one. Um, it's Don't Turn Away. Um, it's a good closer. It's a, a little bit more melodramatic in a way. Um, it has its slower moments where it's a little more ballady. But it's all right. It's it's a cool. It's I mean it's got a cool solo, and uh, the drum work is awesome on this track. So that is the, to me that's the standout. Uh, there is the drum work. This song to me has a, a similarity to "Here I Go Again." It's almost like "Here I Go Again" Part Two, the end of the album, and <laughs> Re- reprise. Yeah, yeah, like "Here I Go Again" reprise. You know, it, it it just it doesn't work the same way, obviously, because. Uh, it, it's not as big a song, um, but it it you know it, it's it works, but it's not that other song. And you know the chorus to me isn't as catchy, um, and I think that's where the song falls flat. I think the verses are good, the melodies are good, but it falls flat on the chorus where it's not as hooky as 
uh, here I go again, it, that's got the same tempo and that's where the song fails. But it's, again, it's one of those where you, you're at the end of the album, it's a good song, but it's just not as good as the other ones. Yeah. I, like I said, it's, it's my least favorite on the album, but from beginning to end on all nine tracks, I, I enjoy it. And that's, that's, not something you can say for a lot of albums where you just enjoy it from beginning to end. Yeah, I mean, for me, um, Slide It In and and this album, both are albums you can listen to beginning to end and not be completely like, oh, this song is so crappy, I got to get it off. You know, <laughs> the, the the albums work from beginning to end and that that's, that's was one of those things about that, you know, AOR rock album oriented rock this was these were albums that you play beginning and end they worked they are they perfect no not at all but are they classic yes they are so that brings us to which one you think is better than the other so as much as i like slide it in and it is it is a classic album to me it's it's almost like the band trying to figure out exactly where they want to be and so there is this this uh, sense of borrowing ideas from other bands and trying to create a sound, but it's not nearly as cohesive, uh, nor is it as refined as the 1987 White Snake album. Um, I have to go with it because, as much as I like Slide It In, um, you've got the track, the title track, you've got All or Nothing, um, Love Ain't No Stranger. Uh, you've got Gambler's pretty good for what it is. You know, when I first heard it years ago and, and it was the opening track, I wasn't as fond of it. But at knowing where it sits in the U.S. version of the album, etc., um, there's there's a lot of good stuff here. But to me, there's not as much good, even though there's more tracks. Um, and so if you took out, like, Give Me More Time, Spit It Out, and left it just an eight-album track, I think I would raise it a couple points but i still don't think it would beat 1987 so i gotta go with the 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 latter album well for once in a while we finally disagree (laughs) nice Uh, we've we've been in agreement a lot lately um in this particular case i disagree and i think one of the big reasons why i disagree is for me the last three songs on on white snake on 1987 just kind of fall flat for me um and to me slide it in is one of my desert island albums um i i really i i could i continuously i mentioned it earlier i go back to both these albums but i go back to slide it in probably two to three times more than i go back to white snake and it is that kind of album for me i just i love it and i i I grew up on that album if you want to put it that way so it's one of those albums that has just stayed with me year after year after year and i could i could pick it it's probably one of my top 10 albums of all time white snake won't be a top 10 it'd probably be a top 20 so i like slide it in all right all right so that's where we're at with that and that brings us to the big four White Snake songs. Um, I believe, I, I believe you went first last week on the songs. I think that's correct. So I'm going to go first this week on the 
big four white snake songs. So number four for me, crying in the rain is such a, you, you know, you like it. It's such a powerful song. Um, there are such great songs that, you know, like I like still a night. I like here I go again. I love bad boys, but crying in the rain is such a good song to me. I love that song. It it just stands out, and there's a, so much emotion on this version of it that it just really, really, it was. It's one of my favorite songs from White Snake. Number three, off of the Slip of the Tongue album, is "Fool for Your Lovin," which is another remake of a previous White Snake song. This one being faster and better. Um, Recorded with Steve Vai and Adrian Vandenberg on guitars. It was, Steve just did an amazing job and he's so smooth. I love the guitar solo on it because I know that's a Steve Vai guitar solo. You could see it. You can hear it. You can feel it. So I love Fool for Your Love. And it was the first single off of Slip of the Tongue when that came out. So it's really cool. Number two, Love Ain't No Stranger off of Slide It In. You know, we talked about it earlier. It's just a, cool song i i love everything about that song and it's my number two my number one song also off of slide it in slow and easy i absolutely love that song that is by far hands down my favorite white snake track awesome so that leads my big four uh we have the same for our number four crying in the rain um, and that's, again, mostly based on the, the re-recorded version. Uh, the original is very cool, and I li- I've actually really enjoyed uh, listening to John Sykes' version of the song. Um, but this is the definitive version, and it's just excellent. There's so much emotion poured into it. Um, it has just a different dimension than the original. Uh, my number three is Children of the Night. I know you said you don't like the track, but I've always really loved it. Um, I think it's just one of those that it reminds me of Dio, and anything that reminds me of Dio is good. <laughs> and <laughs> it reminds me of the 80s, you know? And, yeah. and there's this, this this distinct feeling of when growing up as a kid in the 80s, of, you know, just the music that was playing, watching movies, um, and that, that, that vibe of, of film in the 80s, was just so different you know there was there was this um kind of uh you know coming of age story that was told that isn't really done too much anymore there's still obviously coming of age stories but it was like a different feeling like there was this this sense of freedom in a way and when i listen to songs like this it just conjures those images and and you know thinking of the future this like this bright imagery as a kid that i just loved my number two is Slide It In. Um, that's a song that always pops up in my head just constantly. I, I, I love it. I, I had to debate between my number one and my number two. Um, but this is this for me, it's number two only because I just I love my number one even more. And that is Still of the Night. It's the first it's the first White Snake song that I ever remembered as being a White Snake song. I may have heard Here I Go Again before. I don't know. But Here I Go Again didn't ever register to me the same way. And Still the Night was one of those that I heard on the radio and I was like, I have to know who this band is. So 
I think for that that nostalgia factor alone, it kind of puts it as the 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 song that like set me on the path of listening to White Snake, and that's maybe why it's my number one. It's debatable whether my number one and two are in the right slot, but I think the significance there is what puts it in the number one slot. Absolutely, I I I, I agree with your the way you you put it in terms of. It's nostalgia for you, and that's the reason why Slow and Easy and 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 Loving No Stranger are one and two for me because mm-hmm. that's the first White Snake I heard, you know, and those are the ones that stuck with me over the years, you know. Three and four for me was were a little bit harder to choose. I easily could have chosen Still the Night, um, but Crying in the Rain is, is that just the way it it starts with the uh, with him basically, you know screaming out the fact that you know he's hurting you know black cat moans when it's burning with the fever you know it's it, it's just you can feel the pain you know from, mm-hmm. I love that song still a night obviously you know is such a killer song sometimes it's one of those because it's played so much you like all right, you need to pick something else but I still I love crying in the rain. I, I those two songs on that album just go back and forth for me as being such great songs. So yeah, yeah I, and I I understand that that sense of you've heard the songs so many times, and it, it does become grating in a way. I don't really listen to the radio. I listen to more um, the albums. You know, I, I'm an album guy, mm-hmm. um, so I don't have that same sense. But you know when you go to baseball games or you go to any sporting event and you hear the same songs over and over again, I totally get that. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. So that is, um, that is a cool list. I like your list. So still a night. That's a great song. All right. Well, that is our big four white snake songs for today. Chris, tell them what's up. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of today's episode. Remember, if you like what you heard today, be sure to check us out on social media and leave us a comment. Make sure to tune into the next episode when we spark up another exciting metal debate. On behalf of Kenneth and myself, stay safe. And remember, always turn it up to 11. See ya.